Hey folks, this is Michael, and welcome to Tatter. Before we get started, I just want to say that unless anyone says that they are speaking on behalf of a particular organization or group, you should assume that each person's views expressed on Tatter are theirs and theirs alone. I just want to make that clear to avoid misunderstanding. And now that I have effectively precluded any such misunderstanding, let's get started. Here's Tatter. I am very lucky. I had a chance recently to talk to Ashley Jardina, who is at Duke University. And I had a chance to talk to her about her upcoming book. And before our conversation, I even had a chance to read it from the galley proofs, for which I'm very grateful. The book is based on her award-winning dissertation, and at a time of debate about the need, claimed by some, for a border wall, and debate over a trumped-up national emergency, if you will forgive the pun, her book is quite timely. And I am delighted to share this conversation with you in this episode of Tatter, which is titled Fear of Falling. Ashley Jardina, welcome to Tatter. Thanks for taking the time to chat with me. Uh, you are an assistant professor of political science at Duke University. That's right. And are you a fan of the Duke men's basketball team? And be aware that uh, for college basketball fans, there is a very right or a very wrong answer to the question. There is. I, I'm i going to be honest and say that I'm actually fairly agnostic. I am a true Michigan fan, and so I don't actually follow basketball or Duke basketball very much. But I suppose if push were to come to shove, I am a Duke employee, and so I would have to cheer for a Duke men's basketball. Well, I, in my foolish youth, I used to be a Duke fan as well. Uh, and even though I'm not now, I can't hold it against you. Uh, what I can't, what I <laughs> What I could hold against you is your um, undergrad, master's, and PhD alma mater. Uh, you were very loyal to the University of Michigan, I see. Uh, I'm an Ohio State PhD, as my friends and many listeners know, but I will not hold that against you, um, especially because I'm really excited to talk to you about uh, your work. And, well, thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> of course. Uh, did you grow up in Michigan? I did not. I actually grew up just outside of Richmond, Virginia. Oh, Okay. Okay, so one of the things that I'm going to want to talk about in a bit is any connection that you see between the place where you grew up and the work that you've been doing. But let's first dive into the work. And so uh, your dissertation, uh, I'm looking at your CV, the dissertation title was Demise of Dominance, Group Threat, and the New Relevance of White Identity for American Politics, which, by the way, I see that this dissertation was the winner of the 2015 American Political Science Association Award for Best Dissertation in Race and Ethnic Politics. Congratulations. Thank you. And I assume the dissertation is the basis of the book that's about to come out? It is, absolutely. And I confess, even though I read the book, I don't have it on my iPad in front of me. Is the title still White Identity Politics or is it just White, Ident white Identity now? It's White Identity Politics. Okay. So what drew you to the topic? Well, I, we could spend the whole time probably, of course, <laughs> of this podcast <laughs> be answering that question. But 
There's a couple things. I, I want to point out to listeners um, that I finished my dissertation and, and wrote it about white identity politics in 2014. So well before Donald Trump came on yep. the scene. And I had had an interest in racial attitudes and racial identity. And I had also spent some time prior to graduate school and in my early years in graduate school think, thinking about Southern identity. So yep. kind of a precursor to your forthcoming question about where I grew up and forming my interest in my scholarship. Um, that's certainly the case. And I think part of what motivated me to study and explore this topic was that here I was a graduate student with the whole set of literature that had been written on racial attitudes in front of me. And I'm starting to think about this fresh and for the first time. And I noticed that the literature largely dismissed the idea that whites thought about race or that they had some sort of attachment or um, sense of solidarity with their racial group and that the overwhelming focus was on white racial prejudice. And that's for good reason, um, certainly, but it didn't sort it didn't completely fit or coincide with some of my own anecdotal experiences. And also just sort of from a theoretical perspective, I was like, wait, is this true? Are we right about this? Are we sure about this? This seems like an area of, literature that is worth poking at or thinking about again. And so that's how I got interested in it. And so one of the things that you talk about early in the book is a distinction you draw between white identity on the one hand and white consciousness on the other hand. Can you define each of those terms and talk about the differences and similarities, if any? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm not the first person to make this distinction between identity and consciousness. It's something that social scientists and particularly social psychologists have been talking about really since the 1960s and 1970s. And the idea is that we have all types of groups and identities that we attach ourselves to. Um, So we might see ourselves as college students or college professors or members of a particular religion, or we might identify with our race or our gender. Um, But it's not always the case that those identities coincide with a set of political beliefs about the world. And so the big distinction between identity and consciousness is that consciousness entails that psychological attachment, that significance or that identity that you feel toward a particular social group. But it's also combined with a very specific set of beliefs about how that social group is situated in the world and how it should behave. So in particular, people who have a strong group consciousness, whether we're talking about with respect to race, as I am in the book, or we're talking about gender, they not only feel attached to their group, but they think that their group should work politically to try to change their group circumstances, generally with the belief that they're either worried about their group status um, because it's a dominant group and it's somehow being challenged, or as a subordinate group, they might be looking to try to increase the status of their group or try to achieve greater levels of equality among their group and other groups in society. So another way of putting it is it's kind of like identity plus. It's identity plus this very specific set of beliefs about collective action. Do you see it as a mirror image of, of black consciousness or is there, are, are there any important differences between those two? Well, yes and no. So The big difference with major implications for thinking about racial equality is that whites are a dominant group. And so that means they hold a disproportionate share of the social, economic, and political resources in the country. So they're not looking as 
Blacks and other people of color and other um, oppressed groups in society to try to level the playing field or to achieve some higher status. They're looking to protect their status atop of racial hierarchy. And so in, in thinking about the political consequences of white identity and white consciousness, which is a big part of the book, one of the things that I was struck by because of its timeliness is, if I recall correctly, you offer some evidence, correlational admittedly, but some evidence consistent with the idea that white identity and consciousness could be among the antecedents of white American support for a border wall. Am I recalling the data correctly there? That's right. So whether we're talking about a border wall or a host of policies associated with immigration, I consistently find that white identity is a really good predictor of more um, conservative immigration policies, uh, a preference to lower levels of immigration, a preference for building a wall, um, other things too, like uh, support for uh, birthright or support for eliminating birthright citizenship and uh, changing the constitution so that um, we no longer have birthright citizenship in the U.S. These are all things that are associated with higher levels of white identity and white consciousness. And, and to be clear, you're basing these claims not only on correlation coefficients, but multiple linear regression analyses where you're controlling for a battery of demographic factors such as education, gender, age. And am I right that the relationship between white identity and white consciousness on the one hand and support for the border wall on the other or this broader set of issues that you re you've referred to, those relationships hold even when you control for attitudes toward racial outgroups? Yeah, absolutely. And so there are two important components here and points I think worth highlighting. One is that I find these effects even when you control for um, anti-Latino attitudes or anti-Hispanic attitudes, when it comes to other types of policies that I argue matter um, or associated with white identity, I also account for and control for racial resentment and attitudes toward Blacks. And the other thing I want to point out, too, is that what's really fascinating is how remarkably consistent these relationships are. So it's not that just that I find these effects after a whole host of controls in my model, but I find them over time and across a number of data sets, including nationally representative data sets. So in the book, I'm working with about seven different data sets over the span of a decade. So I wonder, I know you, you were, uh, you hastened to point out that you began this work before Trump's election. But I, I wonder if you would agree that at least at an intuitive level, and probably given the way he operates at exclusively an intuitive level, doesn't his campaign strategy suggest that he actually seems to get some of the ideas that you're describing in the book about the potency, the political potency of white identity and white consciousness? Yeah, absolutely. So the way I like to think about it is Trump is in some ways a symptom of some of the things that we are observing in the American political environment. But he also is, you know, despite our <laughs> impression of Trump, um, you know, being largely incompetent as a president and, um, you know, not being the savviest political figure, uh, which in fact might be true. You know, we might give a lot of credit to uh, people like Steve Bannon and Steve Miller and some of yeah. the other people behind Trump's campaign. But nevertheless, Trump so uniquely when we compare him to other Republican presidential candidates and, and so expertly directly appealed 
to this subset of American voters, the people who are high on white identity and high on white, white consciousness in a way that none of the other political candidates seemed to attempt to do or were able to do. And so absolutely, um, Trump, if, if we could have written, if I could have written a playbook, and to, to be close, it's not something I would have wanted to do, but if I could have written a playbook of how politicians could exploit white identity politics, Trump would have essentially followed um, every step of the process. So not that you're in the business of playing the role of advisor to either more centrist Republicans who might want to uh, go up against Trump in a, uh, an intra-party challenge or advising Democrats. But I wonder if there were a playbook for them based on your understanding of this subset of voters, would there be any strategies that might be effective at counteracting his approach? That's a great question. And one that I wish I had a more definitive answer to, but I think one sort of obvious strategy would be to change the nature of the conversation. So immigration is such a central issue to white Americans who are concerned about their racial group and who have this sense of identity. And at the same time, we know that Immigration is not really that much. I mean, it's, it's not a national emergency. Um, levels of immigration into the U.S. have dropped quite significantly over time. Um, they're certainly much lower in the Trump era than they were in the Obama era. Um, there's little reason to believe uh, from a lot of really good social science evidence that immigration is harmful to the country. If anything, we know that it's helpful. Um, but the sort of fear mongering and the in, constant attention to immigration as a political issue um, is a deeply effective political strategy. And so if moderate Republicans and Democrats are concerned about all of this attention to the politics of white identity, one thing they could do would be to try to redirect the national discourse away from immigration toward other issues. Now, just to push back on part of that, uh, I totally and I want to preface, uh, lest I be misunderstood, that I'm very much a supporter of immigration. Uh, and my understanding is, as exactly as you said, that it's net beneficial. But uh, I seem to recall seeing that there's some evidence that the benefits aren't evenly distributed across uh, various social classes and that for working class and poor uh, residents, uh some forms of immigration immigration may not be uh, beneficial, say, if, if they're competing for um, uh, unskilled uh, uh, labor positions, they may not benefit. Am, am I wrong about that? So it seems to me that the evidence on that point is is fairly mixed. Um, okay. But what's interesting is that, what, so regardless of whether or not that's true, what is interesting is that there isn't actually... Um, with respect to public opinion, we don't find these market class differences with respect to okay. opposition to immigration. So even if the white working class are people who are disproportionately affected in labor market by immigration or, you know, by sort of other consequences of globalization, like outsourcing trade, um, they're not a group that's sort of uniquely or disproportionately opposed to immigration. Um, yeah. So we find that whites across the income and class spectrum and occupation spectrum um, are equally opposed to immigration. Well, you actually anticipated my next question, which was going to be about the political calculus uh, there. But yeah, if I understand you, it sounds as if my premise that working class voters may be especially mobilized um, 
by immigration concerns more so than others may not be supported by the data. It's not. And that's generally what we find in political science when we examine the role of self-interest, particularly self-economic interest and attitudes about a whole host of policies. Voters aren't really good at, um, for good reason, they're not very good at understanding how a whole host of political policies um, or political issues are going to affect them personally. One, it's because, you know, politics are complicated and it's hard to determine how a policy might actually, at the end of the day, affect any one of us as individuals. But the other thing is that politicians tend to talk about politics when it comes to groups. They talk about it in group terms. And so that's partly why we organize our political world around uh, social cleavages, like around race. And so that's why you tend to find whites, regardless of their personal circumstances, um, opposed to immigration, uh, because politicians are talking not about immigration necessarily just hurting the white working class, but about hurting Americans and white Americans and sort of America as we know it. And it gets tied up in a lot of these cultural issues, and less um, focused on or less tied up in these more economic issues. Let's talk more about the uh, the demographics of people high in white identity. Uh, in in chapter four of your book, you 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 paint a pretty detailed picture of the typical U.S. resident who is white and high in white identity, and some of the variables that you found correlated with it um, were not too surprising for me. So, for example, they tend to be less well educated uh, than those low in white identity. Am I recalling correctly? That's right. But Income and wealth, so home ownership rates, for example, income did not differ much at all. Am I recalling that correctly? That's right. Most white Americans in the United States own homes, and most whites who are high on racial identity also own homes. So they're not the sort of disaffected white working class. Um, it, it's also not uh, primarily um, men who identify as white. And so I think a lot of people who are thinking about white identity politics or might not have read the book yet or thinking about picking it up might have this image in their mind of the typical white identifier. And I think that the sort of image of the white working class man who situated in a blue collar job is um, likely the, the archetype of uh, who people assume I'm talking about. And I think what's fascinating is that that's not true, actually, <laughs> that um, white identifiers are found across the income spectrum and across the occupation spectrum in the United States. What about age as a correlate? So there is a slight, and I want to emphasize slight, I don't want to overstate this, um, a slight correlation between age and the propensity to identify as white so that such that older white Americans are more likely than younger white Americans to possess a racial identity. So I find that interesting because when I was thinking about the political future of the electorate, I was imagining that if there were a strong correlation between age and white identity, where white voters high in white identity tended to a great extent to be older, one could imagine that over time a kind of generational replacement would occur where their potency as a voting bloc would diminish. But if that age correlation is weak, that would seem to argue against that generational replacement hypothesis. Am I right about that or am I missing something? I think that you're right about that. And there are sort of two countervailing forces, I think, in American society that are kind of pushing against younger whites in terms of whether they 
feel this attachment to their racial group. One is the sort of overarching narrative about the need to live in a colorblind society and the need to not see race. And of course, we know that that's a problematic narrative for a host of reasons. One is that it sort of leads people to deny um, racial difference and deny structural inequality between races. It sort of it allows whites to ignore the very real um, effects of race on people's uh, lives. But the other thing that's happening is that, and this is an argument that I make in the book, is that white Americans have essentially sort of co-opted the language of race and racial identity and the way of talking about identity groups that they've observed people of color in the United States use. Um, yep. Again, in sort of a, in a way that's problematic, right? Because what that fails to recognize is, is that identities have developed among these groups because of their historical systematic experience with oppression and subordination. Um, but if you're, you know, a younger white person and you've grown up at really in any time post 1960s, your experience of how social groups organize and talk about politics in the U.S. is one tied up in this notion of identity politics. So a lot of young white voters, just as older white voters, um, make the same, you know, they make the same argument, which is that, well, people of color and all these other groups organize around their race and they have an identity. So why can't I? Hey, folks, this is Michael. And I just want to jump in to offer thanks to those of you who are monthly supporters of Tatter. Your individual donations mean a lot to me, and they also help offset the costs of production. For those of you who are not yet supporters but want more information about how to become one, go to patreon.com slash tatter for more information. But those of you who are students at the college where I teach, please do not do that. I can't accept your support. Everyone else, though, come on in. The water's just fine. With all that said, Let's get back to the conversation. Earlier, I asked you to, th I, I foreshadowed that I was going to ask about Richmond, Virginia, where you grew up. Let's talk about that now. When you think about the political culture or the social culture of Richmond, Virginia, were there any indicators that in general, levels of white identity among white residents tended to be high or low? Did it depend upon which neighborhood you were looking at? I wonder if you have any thoughts there. Well, yes and no. So I think in hindsight, it seems clear to me in a way that it didn't at the time. So when I was growing up, I was certainly aware of the fact that Richmond was the capital of the Confederacy. It very much... Um, maintains this connection to that part of its history. Uh, you know, you Richmond is infamous for Monument Avenue, which is a major boulevard uh, in downtown and in the center of the street or at, at each block, basically, are these big um, Confederate statues, monuments to uh, Confederate leaders. And it's certainly also a place where, and it continues to be a place where race relations were very intense um, and frequently conversations about race were part of the public and the political discourse. So <laughs> we're thinking about some of the recent scandals in Virginia politics uh, um, at the, in the executive branch, but in some ways you know, that is uh, for Virginia politics some sort of same old, same old. And so I grew up in Richmond thinking a lot about race and racism 
And I should say that probably part of the reason is that my family is not from Virginia, nor are they from the South. Um, they're from my, most of my family is from Western Pennsylvania, which to be clear has mm. its own issues yeah. <laughs> around yeah. race, but yeah. um, it race is not sort of written into the fabric of the identity of the city in the way that it is in Richmond. Um, it, it has a whole, Western Pennsylvania's kind of conversations about race are very much tied up with the sort of myth of immigration and um, this sort of immigrant narrative, uh, which also probably <laughs> may have influenced how I think about the world and what I study. Um, but in Richmond, uh, there's such an attention to both racial conflict and this um, attachment to the Civil War. And I, I just started to both in my childhood and then going to college and then early in graduate school, I just thought a lot about this. And I thought, you know, it's clear that part of what's going on is just sort of sheer racial animosity. A lot of whites hold a lot of prejudicial attitudes toward blacks. Um, but what is it about that that necessarily leads people to feel so attached to like these Confederate symbols and to want to hang on to them? Um, and that, so that question, I think, pervaded a lot of my thinking, which is that there's something else going on. It's not just, not to say that racial prejudice isn't a huge component of this, especially when we're looking at like things like support for Confederate symbols. But I kept thinking there's something else that's a part of this. And part of what motivated me um, was some of the work that had been done on Southern identity. Uh, and the sort of attachment that people have to race, to place and, and to region. But it also seemed like Southern identity had this other component to it, something that had to do with whiteness. Because we're not talking about all Southerners, right? Like we're talking about white yeah. Southerners having yeah. a Southern identity. And, and so that's part of how I got to where I am now and how I started to think about these things. Part of why I find that really interesting is that I, I grew up in Arkansas uh, so a, a Southern state and to some extent, not as much as you might expect. I encountered, uh, whites who definitely valorize the old South, but what's been even more salient to me is the frequency with which I see Confederate symbols, no, notably the, the Confederate battle flag here in Maine, where I now live. Uh, so not at all a Confederate state. Um, uh, a state which, if I'm getting my history correct, uh, a very famous Mainer, Joshua Chamberlain, famously fought for the Union side. Uh, and yet, Mainers are flying the Confederate flag, particularly in the more rural second district in which I live, which is the more conservative, more less well-educated, uh, more rural district. And so I've historically chalked that up to racial animus, but your book has complicated my view in that, and I, I do think that's definitely part of it, but I do think that above and beyond, there is this attachment to whiteness, uh, especially uh, among those who feel somehow alienated, to use a term from your book, uh, so uh, left behind by uh, changes in the country uh, and the world. Um, did you see anything similar when you moved to Michigan? I don't know if the stars and bars fly on any pickup trucks out there. I certainly see it. And I've seen Confederate flags on pickup trucks, right? And on cars across the, the country. And so I think that 
a lot of these attitudes are certainly not limited to the South, but they're much closer to the surface, I think, in the South than they are in other places. And yeah, I mean, I think your experience is certainly consistent with mine. And I think one thing that's interesting to think about and just deeply related to thinking about the import of Confederate symbols and, and these symbols across the South is when we talk about, and by we, I, I generally mean social scientists, when we talk about racism or racial animus or racial prejudice, we're often talking about this sort of socialized just dislike for a group. Like you were taught by the media or your parents, or your grandparents, or your friends, just to have this sort of um, maybe at times irrational, but uh, learned hostility. So white people are just taught like, some white people are taught that they should have some disdain or dislike for blacks in the United States. And sometimes we know, we think about the nature of that, right? Sometimes um, some of the theories that we think about have something to do with um, the belief that blacks don't live up to particular American values like hard work or patriotism or whatever. But regardless, it's sort of this learned um, animosity, right? Yeah. But you know, when I think about some of the Confederate symbols in the South, right, you know, there's, there's a sign that I used to pass when I was driving down Route 1. Um, and it's one of those historical markers indicating that there's a historical site somewhere off the, the route. Um, it's the Robert E. Lee Shrine, not the, not the historical museum or whatever. It's a shrine. And so there's still some of these interesting practices in Virginia, right? So uh, Virginia doesn't have, doesn't recognize Martin Luther King Day. It still has Lee Jackson King Day. So Martin right. Luther King gets to cel- share, right, the celebration <laughs> uh, with Stonewall Jackson and Robert E. Lee. And I'm not sure any of them would be happy about that. I don't think any of them would be happy about this. But, you know, every year the around the, the day, the United Daughters of the Confederacy hold a replaying ceremony at the Virginia State Capitol in honor of Stonewall Jackson. And it feels really hard to believe that these things, these symbols, um, that this attachment to the Confederacy and to the Civil War and to these sort of markers of, uh, <laughs> of Southern heritage, that those are completely about just expressions of race, racial animus or racial animosity in this way. Um, but I think that they're also about, and that I, I point to and I talk about in the book, they're about the preservation of whiteness and the preservation of white power mm-hmm. um, and whites be, having the ability to sort of maintain and dictate and hold power over America's political institutions. And I think that what a lot of existing theories of racial prejudice have missed is that component to the story. I, I, I'm a college professor and I think about education a lot. And so I want to go back to this relationship between education and white identity. And insofar as education is causal in that relationship, and feel free in your answer to dispute that assumption if you don't believe that it's at all causal, but insofar as it is, I wonder if you think that it's merely a quantitative relationship that is, it's simply a matter of how much education one has, or is it at least in part qualitative, where exposure to certain kinds of education may do more to attenuate white identity. So liberal arts education, for example, and again, full disclosure, I'm a professor at a liberal arts college. What are your thoughts on the causal role of education vis-a-vis white identity? And insofar as it's causal, is it purely quantitative or does it matter what the type of education is? So 
It, that's a great question. And for other social scientists out there, people who maybe want to become social scientists, this is also a question that we could answer, right? That we could do some studies, we could figure out. So I haven't, I haven't done this yet. Um, I haven't uh, sort of sliced things quite in this way, but my expectation is that it is certainly qualitative, not quantitative. And the reason is that mostly what I find is that it's not just sort of overall levels of education that are, correlated with higher or lower levels of racial identity is the experience of going to college. And it's really hard to untangle exactly what it is about college that changes people's attitudes about race more generally. And so we find, for example, that it's not just that racial identity among whites is lower among those who've gone to college, but um, a whole host of sort of attitudes that are associated with racial animosity and racial prejudice. So whites who go to college are less likely to be racially resentful. They exhibit lower levels of racial prejudice, et cetera. And it's probably a combination of things. One is it's just um, the sort of experience of going out into the world and meeting people who aren't like you and discussing ideas that you haven't been exposed to before and just having a lot of contact and new experiences with a whole host of ideas and people that you haven't encountered before, right? So there's that component of it. And I think the other part of this is that part of both possessing a racial identity and holding a certain degree of racial prejudice in the United States is tied up in a denial of structural inequality and the denial of discrimination um, and experiences of discrimination that people of color uh, endure. And so you're more likely to learn about those things and have exposure to those things if you go to college, not just because you're going to meet people who have those experiences and they can tell you about it, but also because you're going to be taught that these things exist and, and that um, that race has been such a deep part of American political development and that racial discrimination didn't end with slavery. It didn't end with the civil rights movement. Um, and so I think that, Believing in learning about believing and understanding structural discrimination in the United States is in part an antidote to adopting higher levels of racial identity and racial prejudice. So, in a recent interview, I interviewed Dan Kaufman, uh, author of uh, The Fall of Wisconsin, uh, which I highly recommend uh, if you haven't read it. It's a really interesting book that traces Wisconsin from its progressive roots through the Scott Walker era, which was something other than a progressive era in Wisconsin. And during the interview, one of the things that Dan Kaufman and I discussed was the potential, uh, I would say the potentially economically transformative impact of a broad-based, multiracial, multi-ethnic labor movement. But one of the things that I think would, if not be necessary for that, but would, would certainly be helpful would be for whites high in identity to see that they have common fate with African Americans, particularly whites high in identity in the working classes. But if you're right, as you suggest in the book, that whites high in white identity derive a status boost uh, from separating themselves from non-whites, perhaps especially black Americans. And if, as you said earlier, whites high in white identity are at some level trying to preserve power that belongs to their group, that would seem to obviously be barriers to that. So my question is, 
based on your work and any speculation that you'd care to engage in, do you see ways to convince whites high in white identity that they do have common fate with non-whites? Well, certainly, it's certainly difficult. And there are a lot of forces working against that trend, right? I mean, we have thought a long time for a lot of American history about the why class and isn't a salient sort of component of American politics and why we don't see groups organizing along lines of class. Um, and we don't even really find that class is a particularly significant cleavage in American political life. And so I think part Bernie, of it is Bernie, um, Bernie, right, Bernie Sanders is trying. He's trying. He's definitely, he is trying. But, you know, there, there are two components to this. One has to do with race and one in some ways does not have to do with race. So the part that has to do with race, right, if we go back to, you know, the great thought leader, W.E.B. Du Bois, who argued that um, whites confer this psychological wage or psychological benefit by way of their whiteness. And so that is what um, helps keep working class whites kind of in competition with blacks. Um, so they, they don't, need to organize around class and they don't need to organize collectively around class because they feel that they do get the status boost by way of their whiteness, right? So there's that component. Um, and it seems difficult or I, I can't quite figure out how politicians are going to, to sort of attenuate that, uh, especially because you've got other politicians who would prefer that we, we didn't. Um, and also that, you know, racial attitudes and are so deeply tied um, up in the sort of American psyche that you'd have to, you'd have to find a way to really dramatically change the hearts and minds of, of a lot of Americans. And that seems quite difficult. Um, the other thing though, that is a part of this is that most Americans see themselves as middle class. They don't organize themselves into working class and middle class and the upper class um, in these sort of distinct ways. And there's an incentive for them not to sort of everyone sort of, this is part of like our big narrative about the American dream and American upward mobility. And perhaps as people become increasingly aware of inequality in the United States and increasingly aware of the likelihood that there, there isn't as much upward mobility as there once was um, there, you know, and <laughs> that story isn't actually true or likely to come to fruition. We might convince some people uh, to think about class in this way and to organize around class. But for most Americans, you've got this sort of overarching dream, uh, an idea of the American dream that, um, you know, if any, everyone just works hard, they can make it. I think really pushing against people organizing collectively around class. That's it for Tatter. I want to thank Ashley Jardina for taking the time to talk with me. And I want to make sure you know that her book, White Identity Politics, is coming out Thursday, February 28th. And prior to then, it's available via pre-order from Amazon or directly from Cambridge University Press. And I've read the book. I highly recommend it. For more information about this episode or any episode of Tatter, go to tatter.fireside.fm. Find the page for this episode and there will be links there with information related to Ashley and her book and the broader issues. To offer feedback on this or any episode of Tatter, you can go to Twitter and mention Tatter using the handle at Tatter underscore rags. 
You can also provide a review at iTunes, and I value feedback either way. In any case, thanks for listening, and be well.